Hey, this is Marsha. And I'm Amy. This is Blood Tide, a mother-daughter storytelling podcast. Welcome back, BT Buddies. We're excited to be sharing a new story format called Marsha's Minis, where I, Marsha, will narrate a mini story. Today's Marsha Mini is about the Dutch Nazi hunter sisters, Freddy and Truce Overstegen. These young and courageous Dutch sisters are remembered for their drive-by shootings to liquidate Nazis and Nazi collaborators who terrorized the citizens of the Netherlands during World War II. Trigger warning for today's episode, this story mentions suicide and genocide. So if that's triggering for you, we encourage you to skip this episode. We won't be offended. Before we get started with the story, I just wanted to let you know that I had no idea that there was this story or these sisters at all. I I couldn't believe it. And when I researched it, I came across a ton of reference material like articles, books, movies, documentaries, all kinds of stuff that I had no idea. There's a lot of information on them. There's so much information. Yeah, I, never, I never heard about them before. Yeah, they're so cool. Like, I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't know about them, right? Because they are so cool. So if you want to learn more about them after hearing the story, check out our website or our bio for more information. All right, mom. So let's get into the story. Yes, let's get into the story. All right, so Freddie and Truce Overstegen were two Dutch sisters living in the city of Harlem in the Netherlands during World War II. Harlem? There's a Harlem in the Netherlands? Yeah, there's a Harlem in the Netherlands also, besides New York, but in the Netherlands it has two A's in the name. Freddie, the younger sister, was born on September 6, 1925, and Truce was two years older than Freddie. As young children, these girls were introduced to stand up to authority, fight injustice, and help the less fortunate. They lived in a houseboat, as many of the Dutch did at that time, until they moved into a small apartment with their mother. (laughs) A houseboat sounds fun. I know, it sounds different. But it was common in the Netherlands for people to live in houseboats. Raised as political activists by their leftist mother, the sisters were members of the socialist youth movement called AJC. And side note, there were a lot of Dutch terms in here and I'm not I don't speak Dutch so I don't want to try to don't? say th- I don't and I don't want to try to on. you say should have learned word. for the episode <laughs> oh my gosh I should have gotten Babbel or whatever tools are out there but so I won't be saying we're not sponsored th- by Babbel no we are not <laughs> I will not be saying the full names I'll be saying acronyms because they're they're Dutch words all right we forgive you all right thank you so they were in this youth movement called AJC and the Red Aid which was a communist relief organization Their mother lived to support the greater good of mankind and help people in need. An example was when she gave shelter to Jewish refugees by making space in their tiny apartment and had her girls give up their bed to these guests. Oh, so they they moved out of the houseboat. They did. After their mother and father divorced, they moved into a tiny apartment. Okay, okay. So this advocacy lifestyle and their mother's harboring of Jews right before the outbreak of World War II and the subsequent killing of those Jews were major catalysts that drove the girls to become resistance fighters at the age of 14 and 16. Wow. <laughs> wow, 14 and 16 is really young. Very young. 
A big part of this story is understanding what was happening with the war and specifically what that meant for the people of the Netherlands. But before we talk about that, let's quickly get some background about the Netherlands. And this is an interesting fun fact is the Netherlands is really called the Kingdom of the Netherlands, which Hmm. I had no idea. And Amsterdam is the capital. For almost a century, the Netherlands remained one of a few neutral countries in the European mainland. This kept the Netherlands out of many conflicts. So they were kind of hanging out on their own, not, you know, not, not, not getting involved, right, in, in other countries' issues. So aligned with being neutral, the Netherlands wasn't really focused on military might or having a big military budget to grow a military force. And the Netherlands also borders Germany and Belgium with a fair amount of coastline against the North Sea. Holland is an area many people know about the Netherlands, and that's a region in the Netherlands. And the city, Harlem, is next to Holland or very close to Holland. And Holland is the area where our sisters lived that is and was famous for tulips. So when you see pictures about the Netherlands and you see little children with I don't know, some kind of wooden shoes and then tulips. Clogs. Yeah, they're (laughs) clogs. You're right. Thanks. I couldn't think of the word. And tulips, like that's this area that where the Oh, yeah. Like a lot of times on those clogs, you see little tulips painted on them. Yeah. That's this area that we're talking about. So it was a beautiful area and well-known city with cobblestone streets. Famous composers, Mendelssohn, Handel, and Mozart, they played music there um, just west in the city, which is just west of Amsterdam. And then there are a lot of wooded areas that are popular walking paths in the city. So it was a really beautiful place to live um, before yeah, the Germans it. came. I've, I've always wanted to go to the Netherlands because I think it's supposed to be one of the top five happiest countries, I think, according to the World Happiness Report of 2021. So they sound really happy because it's so beautiful. Well, I'll just say in a minute we're going to hear how it was a living nightmare and they would have never made <laughs> it onto the World Happiness Report, if that existed in 1939. (laughs) Also, the Great Depression showed up in the Netherlands around 1933 and lasted until 1936. So the impact of the Great Depression was still being felt by families in the Netherlands, including the Overstegen family. When did the um, Great Depression happen in America? Around 1929, and it lasted till like the mid-30s. So Europe was a little bit behind right the timing of that which i was just wondering if they were like if they coincided okay not exactly but i mean generally during the same deck around the same decade right so that's kind of the background of the netherlands near the start of world war ii and then while world war ii started on september 1st 1939 and it started with france and britain declaring war on germany the netherlands remained unaffected because hey, they're neutral, right? We're not getting involved. They had no idea the scope and magnitude. Of what and, was to come. Yeah, yeah. what was to come. Um, but they also didn't realize that they were a target of Germany's because it was a prime launching spot for the Germans from which to attack France, and they could deter England from setting up operations in Europe's mainland. Because remember, England's kind of hanging out there as an island. The Dutch coastline had very high strategic military value and advantage for Hitler in the Third Reich. So they were a complete target and thought that their neutrality was going to keep them safe. But on May 10th, 1940, Germany invaded the Netherlands, and the initial fighting lasted for almost five days. 
Despite some small Dutch victories, the Dutch military was no match for the experienced, modern, and really well-equipped German military. Well, yeah, you said earlier, they didn't even really, like, have a military because they were, they, they didn't fight people, right? So I mean, they had one, but it was small. Yeah, and, yeah, and they it didn't was put a, such a lot of resources budget. into it, yeah. That's right, exactly. So, I have to say, four days into the attack, the Royal Dutch family fled and took off to Great Britain. <laughs> Real nice. Real nice. <laughs> Leave your people. Real nice. So Germany set a three o'clock deadline on May 14th for the Royal Dutch Army to surrender. They already had bombs in place in case the Dutch resisted, right? They had a plan B. And realizing their situation was hopeless, the Netherlands surrendered to Germany on May 15th, 1940. General Winkleman signed a capitulation agreement. Winkleman. How about that name? (laughs) And in case you're wondering what's a capitulation agreement, because I did, according to Wikipedia... It is a treaty or unilateral contract by which a sovereign state relinquishes jurisdiction within its borders over the subjects of a foreign state. As a result, the foreign subjects are immune for most civil and criminal purposes from actions by courts and other government institutions in the state that makes the capitulation. So basically the Dutch couldn't go after the Germans for anything they did to them. (laughs) Kind of smart if you're like the bad guy. (laughs) I think it was probably the Germans who wrote that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm saying that whoever, like, the person was within the German army, he was like, hey, we should make this thing called a capitulation agreement and have them sign and we can't ever get in trouble. Really good lawyers. After the Dutch surrendered and despite the order to stand down, Germany still bombed Rotterdam and left a path of destruction with hundreds of Dutch citizens killed. Yeah, when you said that they had those bombs in place or whatever, I thought they were going to... Use them. Yeah. One way Regardless or of what they, the Dutch did. Yeah. So this is the time and place that our story begins. Now the girls and all Dutch citizens are living in a German occupied Netherlands with a German civil occupying force, strongly influenced by fanatical Nazis and the SS. Germany considered the Dutch to be Germanic brethren and tried to convert them to Nazism. What's Germanic brethren? Like brothers? More like neighbors because their countries bordered each other and they had some shared culture, maybe some shared background. Immediately, things in the Netherlands progressed from bad to worse. Suicide rate, especially among the Jewish refugee community, skyrocketed. Pro-Germany prisoners were released and roamed the streets to support the German agenda across the Netherlands. So let out criminals just because they were in support of Germany. Wow, great. Yeah. Dutch soldiers captured during the German attack were released and offered employment in an expanded German police force. So they weren't really releasing them. They were being kind of forced to join the other side. <laughs> Seems like. I think so, right? You have a, it's a choice, but really only one option that's viable. Yeah. So Germany was trying to turn the native Dutch population to be pro-Germany or Germany supporters to quell any of the counter-resistance. And that German-led security police was implemented to punish political crimes. They employed Dutch agents to infiltrate resistance groups to ferret out enemies of the Third Reich. Dutch journalism was informed and filtered by Germans, or you could say that it was kind of almost stopped, right? Now it became Nazi communications and and journalism. And persecution of Jews by the Germans started about four months into the occupation of the Netherlands. It's not surprising that they were doing so much stuff to the Dutch people. So Yeah, right from the get-go. So, But let's talk about the early days of the girls' resistance. 
In the beginning, their resistance activities were nonviolent. Nonviolent? I didn't say, how old are they? About 14 and 16. God, what kind of what kind of things are they doing, the not violent things? Well, they distributed like anti-Nazi pamphlets with their mother. Underground publication is really important during an occupation. It's the way you kind of continue to get the word out or some news out. They stole IDs, stamps. Uh, during wartime a lot, there are stamps that are issued, like you have to meet certain criteria and then you can get food or maybe gas or things are rationed and the way they're controlled so they would give out more like say you had a lot more kids and you didn't have enough stamps they'd figure out a way to find you more so you yeah or maybe they they took them from someone else or maybe oh, okay, they started to make stamps yeah, yeah okay. right forge them um and they also helped undocumented people eventually after they were doing all these kind of non-violent things a new resistance group discovered these 14 and 16 year old sisters and they're the commander of this group his name was Franz Vanderveel. I think that's how you say his name. Nice. I like how you said that. <laughs> Asked their mother to let them join the council. He explained their work was more serious, dangerous, and would include acts of sabotage and the use of weapons. They're 14 and 16, right? Yep. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's a different time, so I can't say anything. Franz asked an unbelievable question of the girls. Do you think you could shoot someone? Freddie immediately confessed she had never done this. Truce confided she could, but only fascist swine because not all Germans were Nazis. <laughs> Franz agreed they would only execute Gestapo or blatant traitors with no room for mistakes. Once part of the group, there'd be no backing out for the girls. So they were aware of the Nazis who were committing these heinous acts and, and targeted specifically them? Yes. The, I mean, the Nazis weren't hiding, yeah. right? A lot of the things they did, they did in the open just to promote fear also. The sisters kept their mother in the dark about this work. Truce lied to her mother when quizzed about their conversation with Franz, saying there would be no dangerous assignments for her and Freddie, just simple errands. Yeah, it was kind of like Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Like Fight Club, yeah. The mother expressed her deep love and need for her daughters and asked them to be careful, to support each other always, and to only act against the Nazis. I don't think he would ever have let me become a resistance fighter at 14 or even 16. I wonder what our listeners think. Would you let your daughter or would your mother have let you join a resistance at that age? Message us on our socials or answer the survey on the Anchor and Spotify platform. After their interview with Franz, the girls vetted him with associates of their mother, and then they met Franz to confirm their membership. But he needed to test their allegiance and pulled a gun on them, asking for the address of a Jewish friend. Oh God, this guy's crazy, pulling a gun on their like, little girls. I know, <laughs> but the girls knocked the gun out of his hand, pinned him, and attacked him oh until God. he pleaded for them to stop. Wow. It was a test, and they passed they were in. These, you're right. They are pretty cool. They're badasses. Total badasses, <laughs> especially at 14 and 16. Yeah. Freddie and Truce were, for a time, the only two females in this seven-person rebellion, dubbed the Harlem Council of Resistance. After being, They were the only... Oh, there are seven people and they were the only girls. Okay. They okay, were the I only just, females. Okay. Yeah. After being recruited by Franz in 1941, the two learned basic resistant countermeasures sabotage, 
explosives to blow up railways and bridges, hiding and transporting the undocumented, which are mostly Jewish people, firing weapons, and how to roam undetected through an area peppered with Nazi soldiers. You know, all the things you needed to to know. Yes. Yes. An early organized anti-Nazi incident the girls participated in was to align their teenage friends to gather at a Nazi political party rally and ring the bells of their bicycles at the same time to disrupt the keynote speech. This disruption was a ruse to distract the NSB while resistance members actually cut the microphone and then the entire rally was ended. (laughs) That's so funny. All these little girls coming up wearing their little bells. (laughs) They're probably like, what the heck? Right. (laughs) I wonder if the Nazis thought they were just like little girls having fun or if they actually thought they were like doing it on purpose. They were probably so mad that they didn't even think 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 about about that 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 anymore. They're just like, our speech has been interrupted. Yeah. These Overstegen sisters continue to be involved in illegal resistance activities. They hid undocumented families, mostly Jews, They also ushered illegals to safe houses. They made banners and posted them over German banners all around town. So wherever they saw a German banner that they didn't like, they just posted their banner on top of it. I can't believe the Germans didn't notice them doing those things. Very tricky. The girls worked as a team. Um, One usually was the lookout while the other one took action. But their element of surprise, Amy, to that tricky comment is their young age, right? When Freddie's hair was in pigtails, she looked to be like 12, and nobody expected a young girl like that to be a resistance fighter who was violent. Yeah, we're going to put some pictures on our social medias of the girls, so you can go there to check it out. Yeah. In December 1941, things would take a darker turn. Germany started to extract resources from the Netherlands to aid their war efforts and budgets. This led to Germans exploiting Dutch workers. That means they started to take goods out of the Netherlands and sent them to Germany, including Dutch workers? Unfortunately, yes. And this started to make life in the Netherlands even more difficult. Don't forget to check out our Instagram for episode teasers. Our handle is at Blood Tide Podcast. In the spring of 42, the sisters met some other associates of Franz and formed the Harlem RVV or Harlem Council of Resistance. This group focused on armed resistance. To be an armed resistance required having weapons, and weapons were scarce at this time or were mostly found with the Germans. At this meeting, they discussed how to steal weapons from the Germans. Very nice. (laughs) Their plan was to ID potential German targets who they would lure and kill with knives or daggers and then take their guns. They used the term liquidate for killing Nazis and Dutch collaborators. And just a reminder, these are teenage girls doing this. <sighs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. One time they saw an SS officer walking in town. Another resistance member approached the SS officer with truce. He was going to kill that officer with a dagger to take the gun. But Freddie was riding her bike as the lookout. And at a crucial moment of attacking the officer, both truce and her fellow resistor stood down. Hmm. They failed at this very important task saying they weren't looking to be like the SS and just kill anyone. And Franz told them, oh, it was just a test. This guy, this Franz guy, man, yeah. Lots of tests. (laughs) During the summer or fall of 1942, the increase in the number of resistance groups created friction among the various groups, mostly taking the form of competition and betrayal. There were just so many different factions of resistance, and they had different agendas, and then... 
you know, they were all after the same targets. And so it just caused a lot of, a lot of challenging. So they were like, there's two opposite resistance groups. You and I are on different ones and we would like compete against each other. Right. Or, or we'd betray, I'd betray you so that my cell was more, you know, achieved its goal. And that's unfortunate that they didn't see they had the common enemy. Right. I think that's common. Yeah. So in 1943, they realized there was a need for a centralized group to oversee and coordinate yeah, all, so this all this resistance happening. Yeah. yeah. So folks could be part of this individual. They were in their individual resistance groups and still retain their independence, but they also joined this national organization. Yeah. It sounds similar to unions. Like you're a member of a local union, but also the national union. Exactly. Yeah. Later that year in February, the Germans started to clamp down on the local population in part due to the ongoing acts of sabotage against them. So during this time, they they had concentration camps, right? They certainly did. Uh, The Germans occupied other countries like France, and they were rounding up and deporting Jews and others into camps. Plus, they were enforcing even more restrictions in the Netherlands. It it just didn't stop. It just just kept, the restrictions just kept going on top of each other, right? And life was so difficult for everybody there. There was no more university training or education. Curfews were set. Uh, Swarms of people were arrested and shipped off to prison. So they didn't just send Jewish people into these concentration camps or work prisons. They sent people who were kind of resistance fighters or against them. Yeah, I was going to say, like, all all these things that they're enforcing, it's not just affecting the Jewish population. Like, this is infecting everyone who lives there. Everyone. Every day, every minute of your life. I mean, I didn't really know that, know that that much. Right. I mean, I know things were hard, but I didn't know everyone had to follow these, like, curfews and, you know, all this stuff. They did. Every minute of your life. Yeah. Was enforced by the Nazis. They started executing the Dutch population. Oh, my gosh. Fresh food, new clothing, and bike parts. And biking was an important mode of transportation in the Netherlands. Uh, became scarce commodities. And that was because the Germans siphoned off these resources and sent them to Germany to support the war efforts. Yeah, real nice. They're taking all the resources that don't belong to them. Yeah. On the plus side for the resistance, the Dutch population, having endured these continued hardships for such a long time, started to become sympathetic to their causes and provided them them their firearms. Freddie and Truce frequently transported these guns via bicycle. They said that they had big coats, overcoats on. They sewed deep pockets and they'd stuff them with guns. And then they had these big bags that they stuffed with guns and gun parts and tied it to like the handlebars of their bicycle. And they're riding around town transporting these guns around to different different people that needed it within their resistance group. (laughs) Yeah, they're really, they really are badasses, man. Yeah. I mean... You have to understand, getting caught just wasn't an option because they like they had tons of guns and like all these illegal things on them. Yeah. So, Franz, the leader of the girls' cell, remind redefined their mission to concentrate their violent acts against Dutch traitors. I wonder if the so what was happening with the Germans at this point in time because there was so much so much resistance fighting, right? They started to have a less severe response if the resistance were targeting those Dutch collaborators instead of the German people themselves, right? Like the collaborators helped them, but they were still Dutch citizens. And so they're like, eh, not so much if you, if you kill them, but if you kill us Germans, heavy price to pay. So I'm thinking that Franz decided to redefine who they were targeting based on the repercussions that could possibly come out. A side note was 
Muffin was a Dutch derogatory slang slang nickname for Germans. I think it was kind of akin to kraut. So in different literature that I read, they're like muffin this and muffin that. Muffin? <laughs> One particularly sad experience during the German occupation and war, and this was across the board, right? This is, I don't think this was just in Netherlands, was when an undocumented person, and they were mainly the Jewish population, passed away while they were in hiding, right? So they're hiding in, in Dutch citizens' homes. They're hiding them, and nobody can know. And so when they passed away... It was a big problem with what to do with the body. Mm-hmm. Truce had befriended an older undocumented Jewish woman. When she went to visit the woman, the people hiding her in their house explained she had passed away the previous evening and they didn't know what to do with her body. And Truce wanted to take time to mourn and cry and, and think about you know the life of this woman, but there was no time to do that. She wrapped her in a blanket. She put her in a wheelchair. She pushed her quite a ways um, down the cobblestone streets to the canal. And when no one was looking to make sure the coast was clear, dumped her body in the canal and walked away. Yeah, so there's no burial or no service. It's just really, it's really sad and heartbreaking. Nothing. It was so sad for everyone. The physical landscape of the sisters' hometown continued to change. Remember how beautiful it was? We talked about the cobblestone streets, the tulips. The Germans configured coastal defenses in the north and west seawalls of the city. They did this, Amy, by destroying the homes that were closest to the area that they wanted to build something in. So they they evacuated people from a certain street. Mm-hmm. They told them to take the, whatever goods they could carry. Then what they did right in front of them, they destroyed their homes, they bombed them, and then they took the rubble and they built kind of like they, they built shelters or bomb shelters or th- things that they need structures that they needed instead of instead of you know they had no they had no materials right there were no construction materials so they they just bombed existing they and used then the used houses it. resources and the people were standing there seeing them and their whole house just go up in smoke so they had thick walls were set up in the city and then they had these checkpoints all over the city right The Dutch believed changes were on the horizon, though, when the Germans conceded to the Russians and were also forced out of North Africa. The sisters met a fellow resistance fighter and co-rebel, Joe Shaft. She was better known by her nickname, Hanny Shaft, in the spring of 43. She was a former law student and three years older than Truce from a good family with money. On Labor Day in 1943, The sisters pulled off an act of defiance by hanging a Russian flag over the local German flag hanging near the German headquarters. Executing on such a high-profile act, the girls were told to leave town for a while. They were just too hot. What they did was too hot, and they had to get out of town. They lived with some resistance members in another town, and they actually worked a little bit as nurses' aides. While they also learned to make pipe bombs, and they mapped German anti-aircraft installations. (laughs) Really good resume patterns. (laughs) Exactly. Germany continued to impose even further restrictions on the Dutch. I don't know how that was possible, but it just, it just never ended. And it just got more constricting. In 40, in May of 43, Nazis could shoot indiscriminately into public gatherings. People caught distributing or creating anti-Nazi pamphlets could be sent to German camps. They just sent away anyone who didn't agree with them. Totally. Totally. An 8 p.m. curfew was enforced and all radios were banned. 
So basically, you couldn't have fun. No fun. A ban on fun. A ban on everything. Borders were closed to trade, and any goods and materials found were sent to Germany. All Dutch men, 18 to 35 years of age, were required to register for work deployment to Germany. So, so if you had a husband who was in the age, in the, between those ages, they'd be sent away to go to work in Germany. Yes. It wasn't like if you weren't Jewish, like we said, that you weren't yeah. living a normal life. I mean, the, things were happening to Dutch civilians who, who were non-Jewish people. They just wanted to, they, the Nazis, they just wanted to mess up everyone's life, it seems like, like. They wanted conform. They wanted to get rid of the Jewish population, and then they wanted conformity to their standards. They and wanted everyone was... to conform and be under them. Right. They and, wanted and to be a, the ultimate power for everywhere and align to their their rules and regulations. And there was no room for anything in between. So there is this. There, I found this note around the Central Bureau for Jewish Immigration in Amsterdam. To me. That sounded like a positive organization, but it was the main authority for rounding up the Jewish population by providing a bounty payment on these Jewish heads. Yeah, I agree. The name sounds like it should be helping them come here to help you immigrate to Amsterdam, not rounding them up to send them away to concentration camps. Yeah, exactly. With bounty payments. Tricky, 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 those Germans. And it was even during this time that Heimlich Heinrich Himmler proclaimed the final solution and quote, that is wipe this nation off the face of the earth, unquote. And that he was talking about the Jewish race. Public group killings of resistance members in retaliation for deaths of Germans and collaborators happened. And this wasn't a one for one. Like if, if one resistance fighter killed one German, they started to bring in truckloads in public places, truckloads of resistance fighters. When, when one German was killed they lined, there was an example, they lined up eight of them out in the street for everyone to see. They machine gunned them down. Then they brought out another eight from the truck, lined them up for people to see, machine gunned them down. And then they took their bodies and they put them back in the truck and they left. So this continued to happen again and again. And this was the climate in Harlem when the sisters returned. Remember, I told you it was hot after they did that work and they left and were nurses' aides. Now they're coming back into Harlem and it's getting even more precarious. The sisters and their friend, Hanny Shaft, that former law student, worked together as a small unit sabotaging Nazis in the Netherlands. And Truce was their leader. They used dynamite to dismantle bridges and railroad tracks was the signature of some of their early work together. Sometimes they smuggled Jewish children out of the Netherlands or helped them escape from concentration camps. Eventually, they progressed to liquidating Nazis, and they did this by shooting them from their bicycle or luring them into the woods to kill them. Luring them into the woods. Mm. They have to be flirting, and those Nazis must have had ill intentions with those girls. They certainly did. And it was alleged that the sisters only refused one mission that centered on kidnapping senior Nazi officers' children, and they they didn't want to be part of that because they were afraid the children could get hurt. Yeah, it's a good boundary to have. It is. The girls didn't succeed at all their assignments, though. One of Truce's assignments was very challenging and heart-wrenching. She was to transport a group of 12 young Jewish children ages 3 to 14 to a new location before they could be captured in an upcoming raid. They had, they had intelligence that there was going to be a raid on the location, so they were getting them out of there. She was dressed like a German Red Cross nurse who was chaperoning a, gr- a group of diseased and contagious children to isolation. That must have been terrifying. It was an excellent cover story. 
She had a companion who was dressed as a German officer, but in some of the travels he got lost and she was left alone, right? On two train rides, they walked through a minefield, single file, now, children three to 14. I know. I was thinking my son is almost three and getting him to walk single file through a minefield. I don't know. I feel like that would be, that would be tricky, tricky, tricky. It certainly would be right. And then taking a boat to safely safety. Unfortunately, the Germans were running sweeps along the area where the boat was and they spotted the group. Many of the children fell in the rushing water. The Germans were oh shooting God. at them. So they were drowned. Others were killed by and the she Germans. she was alone with these children. She was oh alone. One person with 12 children. She was only able to save one young girl, and she re- relocated her with a new family. Wow, my gosh. Only one child made it. Wow. Right. Better than none, but still heartbreaking. Yeah. Hitler up- she made it, too. So. Yeah, she did. Hitler upped the ante more at the end of July in '44. No more criminal proceedings were required against political opponents. Instead, the Gestapo could take any action they deemed appropriate. Yeah, just making, like I said, just making them more and more the absolute power. Exactly. Another important assignment was when the girls were collecting intelligence about German V-2 rockets. These are top secret weapon systems, and they were the first long-range guided ballistic missile that was launched from a mobile unit. Finally, in August, September of 44, German tanks started to leave the Netherlands. And um, east of Holland, destination of the relocating Germans, there was a run on the banks, Train stations were overrun by collaborators fleeing. It was a crazy time, and it was known as Crazy Tuesday on September 5th of 1944. Crazy Tuesday. I like that name. Yeah. I can't say that. There, there is an actual Dutch word for it. I just cannot say it. Doldingestag. That's what it looks like. I'm not sure how you say it. But this was a premature response, and Netherlands became a divided country. If you're, um, wait, hold on. If you're Dutch, uh, uh, send us uh, how you say that. <laughs> Okay. Holland and the surrounding areas, including Harlem, were still occupied, and more sanctions came on these, making daily living almost impossible, to the point where people were cutting down the woods just to have fire to cook the little food they had or for warmth. During an unsuccessful assignment to blow up a bridge, Truce met Piet Manger, who would later become her husband during the last month of the war. The girls had more several had more liquidation assignments that they did. Um, some went as planned and others were derailed and not successful. During one of these operations, Truce and Hanny were unable to escape and were caught inside a police barricade. They took off their disguises because they were like dressed like boys and they ran off to the bar to drink and look drunk and trick the police so that they could escape. But unfortunately in spring of 45, Hanny was caught at a checkpoint transporting those guns and those deep pockets with her bicycle and bags on the handlebars. She was imprisoned and later executed at the dunes along the coastline. Mm. Post-war, it would be found that there were 400-plus bodies were found buried in those dunes, Mm -hmm. but only one was female that was recovered, and that was Hanny. Wow. Yep. And then liberation came May 5th, 1945, almost five years later. The Germans capitulated to the Canadians, and unfortunately and very sad, Hanny was killed only about two weeks before the end of the war. You can be sure that they knew it was coming and they still did it. Um, based on an essay posted to the AnneFrank.org site, from May 1940 to 1945, there are about 104,000 Jewish victims from the Netherlands. Just from the Netherlands. Just from the Netherlands, oh. yeah. 
Post-war life for the sisters was a little difficult. Public opinion of the sisters changed with the times or political climate. At times, they were revered for being resistance fighters. In 1967, they were recognized in the Righteous Among Nations, that is, Israel's monument to the memory of those who died in the Holocaust and those who served the cause of Jews. Wow, that's impressive. It is impressive. During the period of the Cold War, their leftist lean was not so welcomed. And then later, they were recognized for their contributions and featured in several documentaries, including Two Sisters in Resistance, um, that was filmed the last year of Truce's life, and Shadow Fight, Europe's Resistance Against the Nazis, a German documentary. It's said there's a street in Harlem named after Freddie. The, the sisters have been featured in dozens of articles. In April 15th of 2014, they, were, they received the Mobilization War Cross from the Dutch Prime Minister. The sisters later opened the Hanny Shaft Foundation in 1966 in remembrance of their friend who died. And then both sisters died at the age of 92. Wow, they lived a long life. They did, and they saw many, many things and did many things. Truce, the oldest, um, had a daughter who was named Hanny in remembrance of her friend. Uh, she was an activist and artist for the remainder of her life and was politically outspoken. She was also um, invested as an officer of the Order of the Orange Nassau for her services at her 75th birthday. And um, her artistic works were inspired by her wartime experiences, and they were paintings, sculptures, and a memoir she wrote, Not Then, Not Now, Not Ever, which was published in 1982. She died in 2016. Freddie wanted to remove herself from the horrors of the war. She married Jan Deeker after the war and led a quiet life raising three children, but she was haunted by her past, especially on May 4th, which was the anniversary of the remembrance of the dead. She died September 5th of 2018. Oh, not that long ago. Not that long ago. On a final note, the sisters were never repentant about their work, including the liquidations. They were fighting for their country and neighbors against an enemy who wanted to kill them. Yeah, they should be proud of the heroic deeds they performed against the Nazis, not ashamed. Totally agree. When I reflect on the heroic actions Freddie, Truce, and Hanny undertook, it makes me think about the current situation in Ukraine and the resistance fighting that must be going on there. I wonder how many sisters have joined the resistance to save their country, their way of life, and their families. Mm-hmm. Citing numbers from the Ukrainian government in a USA Today report, women comprise some 15% of Ukraine's army. Another source in a CBS Morning piece titled Women in the War Effort said, quote, women are returning to Ukraine to deliver supplies and rescue families, end quote. Amy and I pray for their safety, spirit, courage, and an end to this war. Yes, we pray for a speedy and peaceful resolution. That was a great first episode of Marsha's Minis, but mom, I'm looking at the clock and it says we're at 39 minutes, 57 seconds and counting. So technically that does not constitute a mini episode. So I think we're gonna have to start calling them Marsha's Not So Mini Minis. Yeah, that sounds good. What do you think? I can go along with that. Okay, good. Well, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. We always appreciate your support and we will have some exciting announcements coming soon. Join us May 12th for episode four. Until then, be social and join the BT Buddies by following us on Instagram at Blood Tide Podcast. Twitter at 
bloodtidestories. Or email at bloodtidepodcast at gmail.com. We hope you have a great day, evening, and wherever you're listening to this, be safe.